0: My radical dream is neighborhoods that are organized by community gardens instead of police precincts. And I give that answer because it's key to understanding how I've begun to reorient my thinking around policing, um, how I center myself as an abolitionist in the forefront of my work, and something that I just really care about and I love to do, which is amateur gardening.
1: Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds.
0: Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it. Dream Radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering
1: the status quo. In our
0: quest for social transformation, join us on this journey. Let's dream. Let's
1: Hey y'all, it's Aurelius. I'll be a host on today's podcast. There is a history of carceral feminism that dates back to the 1980s anti-rape movement. With the passage of the Violence Against Women Act, Miriam Kaba, a leading voice in prison abolition today, created a zine that I will put in the description of this episode that unpacks this history quite well, with an introduction to the letter to the anti-rape movement written in 1977 by Santa Cruz Women Against Rape. Andrea Smith, scholar activist, talks about this history from VAWA and the bureaucratization of anti-rape work, moving from organizing to support services, which were state friendly out of necessity. Federal funding often is a barrier to radical organizing. As a result of this process, anti-rape organizations began working to criminalize gender based violence and rely heavily on the very institutions that the women's movement was incredibly hesitant in working with, coming out of the 1960s. This criminalization of gender-based violence has created a serious problem of survivors of gender-based violence being criminalized themselves. Countless cases where survivors end up behind bars rather than their perpetrators. What this means is that not only do institutions of policing and prison not protect survivors, but they actually cause more violence in the lives of people who have already been through this trauma. This episode is a reckoning. We have a problem with carceral feminism in this country and in the state of Oklahoma, and we won't make the progress we need in this state if we continue to rely on the state, on punishment, on continued cycles of violence to solve this ever pressing reality that too many women, girls, and gender queer people are faced with. Let's get into this conversation with an incredible advocate by the name of AC Fachi. AC Fachi wakes up each day and chooses a world where there's more healing, more community gardens, and more coffee. An organizer by trade, they have worked with progressive electoral candidates and organizations like the Council on American Islamic Relations Oklahoma, Planned Parenthood, ACLU OK, and Yes on 805 to advance civil rights and justice in their communities. AC believes Oklahoma is worth the work, which is why they've made the home in Oklahoma City with their partner, two dogs, cat, and a small forest of plant babies. So welcome AC to the podcast. I love that bio. Uh, oh hi. Part-
0: Thank you. <laughs> Thanks
1: How for are you having doing me,
0: the- bio. I'm doing great. And I'm just I'm excited to be here to talk with you about something that has weighed heavy on my mind in the last I'm going to say in the last like two years, but I think in particular in the last six months as I worked on the Yes. on 805 campaign, which we'll talk about, I think a little later in the pod.
1: And so, you know, the first question that I want to ask you, AC, is is the question that we ask all of our guests on this podcast. It's the name of the podcast, Dream Radically. Um, What is your radical dream?
0: Um, I usually answer questions of this nature by saying something like, My radical dream is neighborhoods that are organized by community gardens instead of police precincts. And I give that answer because it's key to understanding how I've begun to reorient my thinking around policing, um, how I center myself as an abolitionist in the forefront of my work, and something that I just really care about and I love to do, which is amateur gardening. I think like my confession is this winter, most of my plants have died because I have a cat that won't stop eating my freaking plants. And so they live in the bathroom and it's too dark, but I'm trying really hard. (laughs) And I think that that should count for something when it comes to my plants. So,
1: so this episode is all about carceral feminism, right? And I think that people, listeners may have a good understanding of what feminism is, but I think it's good for us to have like a working definition of carceral feminism. So if you would share, then I might add add some things.
0: Yeah, I think it can be a pretty straightforward answer. Carceral feminism is simply feminism that welcomes police power. Mm. Um, it is feminism that thinks of the criminal legal system as the only mechanism to provide justice to people who have experienced harm.
1: It's a reliance on the prison system, policing courts as a solution to gender-based violence and to any form of violence, really. So how would you describe, AC, your advocacy against gendered violence, right, Um, in connection with advocacy for the, the transformation and abolition of the prison system?
0: I think it's important for me to talk about where I came from in terms of how I started being an advocate around gendered violence and started identifying as a feminist. I joke that I am an accidental feminist. I was raised by a mom who never used the word feminism, but I learned later in life, had written a lot and studied a lot of feminist theory when she was in college, um, and when she worked as a counselor, you know, a therapist in alcohol and drug recovery specifically. And I say accidental, not just because she didn't use the term, but I later learned that my mom felt excluded by the feminist movement, because in the late eighties, when she was deciding that she wanted to have children, it was made clear to her by the people around her that there was not space for having children as the thing that you wanted to do with your life in feminism. So I was raised with really feminist values. I wasn't allowed to have Barbies until I was eight um, because my mom didn't want me to have an unrealistic expectation of the female form. And (laughs) that seems like such a silly thing but it was really radical in shaping my life. Of course, I hated her for it when I was a kid because it made me feel really different from everyone else. But it, it did, you know, it did what she hoped that it would do. It let me make my own decisions and inform myself about what I thought about bodies and how bodies should look. So the feminism piece came early on. I was also lucky to be raised in a household where I was told that I could do whatever I wanted, regardless of my gender. Um, I was encouraged to pursue math. My mom eventually became a math teacher, science, whatever it was that I was interested in, there was an opportunity for me to seek it. And there was an insistence that I have access to it regardless of my gender. Now, it's important to also say that while I was raised a girl, I now identify as non-binary. I am non-binary and trans. And so some of these experiences that I speak to as a young person are really different from how i experience the world now all of that to say (laughs) when i was in college you know i was from day one that angry queer feminist in your class who was always talking back and always fighting with a professor about whatever it was and like i was a sociology major so i was not in the minority (laughs) in terms of like being that angry feminist in your class and Then when I was 21, I was raped by um, someone who was close to me when I was in high school. And that was a really difficult experience. Um, It definitely changed how I thought about the violence that I had been talking about for a long time. And it also happened at a moment where I had already been trained and was volunteering as a rape crisis advocate. So I was volunteering at the local shelter in my college town, and you know I was on call four nights a month to be the person who went to the hospital to sit with people who had experienced sexual assault or other violence, and who asked for an advocate to help them navigate the system. So I experienced being a victim at the same time as I was like actively doing work to support victims. And one of the things then I had to step away from that volunteering it's of the program, that if you have personally been assaulted, that that has to be at least two years in the past. What I learned both through experiencing violence and through being an advocate for other people who had experienced violence was that the police were not going to help. <laughs> and I think I'd always had a sense of that with friends who had experienced violence and were afraid to report. For fear of not being taken seriously, for fear of being criminalized themselves, you know, because they were underage and they were drunk or they were, you know, on drugs of any different kind, you know. And so I learned early, relatively speaking, in my adult brain development that the police were not going to help me as a survivor of sexual violence. What that didn't mean immediately for me was that I rejected policing and the carceral system as the solution for gender justice i spent a long time thinking basically and to some degree i will say this is still a piece of how i think which is that the carceral system as a mechanism for justice was not for me but if it was for other people that was okay and i also was a person who as a survivor of sexual violence jumped really deeply into this kind of narrative that really is like what I now know to be the most prevalent carceral feminist narrative, right? Which is that, can you believe that murderers go to jail for life and rapists only go to jail for five years? And if you were around me between 2008 and hell, I think 2018, two years ago, you might have heard me say something like that. You might have heard me say, rapists should go to jail for longer. It's essentially the major premise of a popular true crime podcast, right, is two women sit around and chat about how ridiculous it is that sex crimes aren't punished more harshly and how heinous these crimes are and how upsetting and abhorrent they are. And it's not that they're not upsetting, it's not that they're not abhorrent. Where I am now, where my advocacy is now is that carceral system is bringing no one justice even for the people who think that it will bring them justice, the way that it perpetuates harm outside of that individual case is a much larger problem that we have to address and we have to tackle head on and we have to name and say, even if I think that the police will protect me, which I'm gonna be clear, I as a queer, trans, non-binary person in a lesbian relationship, I do not believe the police will protect me. I do not believe the police will protect my friends or my loved ones. But even if you do, it is the time to stop and examine why that is, instead of saying-
1: You know, I I think it's helpful for people to hear your story, right? And and see sort of the transformation um, from one place to another. And then to also think about sort of the consistent reliance on institutions of punishment, on policing and prisons as the solution to these harms. And I I think what you were saying at the end there around like how abhorrent these crimes are, right? And, you know, we think about other crimes that have been criminalized that people get punished for, or so we think, right? Because there really isn't a great conviction rate for crimes of murder, but anyway, And we think that that same penalty should be there for uh, rape. And so there's consistently over the past, I don't know, four decades, been sort of this push for harder criminalization, harder laws, right? We need to criminalize chokeholds. We need to ensure that the minimum becomes a a maximum of of, of life or something, right? Because the people who rape, right, who, who cause detrimental harm to survivors' lives should be punished. And what people, I think, fail to see in that is that the fact that you're having to push so hard for the state or for these systems to see these harms or this violence as on a level playing field as, say, murder, shows that this system is one like that's built directly on misogyny and, and patriarchy, right? And, and it's rooted in the perpetual violence against women and queer and trans people. And so continuing to push for these things is the wrong way to go about it because it it doesn't actually provide safety and actually just continues the cycle of violence. Right. Um,
0: That the question is not why do rapists get five years in jail and murderers get 10 years in jail or life in jail, but rather that the question is why do we think that is okay to send someone to jail for life? right, and radically reorienting by both understanding where we are personally and the harms that we've personally experienced. And then also the ways that we've been essentially indoctrinated to believe that the carceral system is the thing that provides justice through any number of pieces of media and understanding that the violence that we have experienced personally and the feelings of revenge or the need for vengeance that we have, because we have experienced harm, is a reflection of the carceral system rather than something inherent to who we are as humans.
1: That's great because I think so often people misinterpret safety for what we've been told is justice under the system. Right, and that this system can actually provide us safety because it is the same system and institution that is causing all of this violence and harm within our communities, yeah. uh, survived and punished. It's
0: specifically um, set up to not provide us with safety.
1: Right, like the, the prison wasn't created to provide safety for all people uh, in this country, right? It, it was It was created as a tool of social control to uphold certain social hierarchies of which women and and queer and trans people are often at the bottom uh, of said hierarchy.
0: Yeah, especially if you consider the dual sort of origins of policing as a popular concept, one being, of course, slave patrols, and the second being ensuring that laborers, through violent means, were working in a way that satisfied the ruling class, the wealthy ownership class. And when you consider that that type of policing, that labor policing, around the turn of the century often meant policing factories that were largely populated by women who were doing this work, and particularly Black women in the late 1800s, post-Reconstruction, Black women and white women, you begin to understand how deep those roots of oppression go.
1: And to also think about the prison as the rapist, right? Like, you know, we're recording this episode. We're in a a sort of lineage of ex-gender-based violence awareness month, stalking awareness month, domestic violence awareness month, sexual assault awareness month. Um, This episode will actually be dropping during sexual assault awareness month. And to think about safety in our communities, It can't come by way of the prison because sexual violence is so pervasive within the prison. Angela Davis, right, talks about this in Our prison's Obsolete, the way that gender situates the prison in and of itself. And the fact that rape and sexual assault and sexual violence is so prevalent within the prison just goes to show that if we're actually advocating against rape and sexual assault, then it necessitates the need to advocate against the prison.
0: Right, and it shows that the first sites of violence for folks who are engaged in policing, whether they're police officers or correctional officers, but the first sites of violence for those people is often their homes um, and the violence that they perpetrate as domestic abusers or as abusers of the people who you know, they enforce the incarceration of. So one of the reasons why we can never rely on police and policing to undo gender-based violence is because the police are major perpetrators of that gender-based violence because they specifically use their power and position as police to exploit people for gender-based violence. And I think it's important for me to bring in here the discussion of the Daniel Holtzclaw case of which if you were to go back in my Facebook history, you will see posts that I made celebrating the incarceration of Daniel Holtzclaw And I I won't pretend like I don't have extremely complicated feelings about that. But the most important part about the Daniel Holtzclaw case that we need to talk about in the context of this conversation is that the only reason that Daniel Holtzclaw was able to be tried, prosecuted, and eventually incarcerated was because he victimized a person who did not have a prior criminal record or did not have a record of arrest. And because that person did not have a record of arrest, the system took that person more seriously than they'd taken any other number of people who had reported his behaviors. And so when we think about it in this way, that the only way for victims to be able to access justice is if they meet the criteria that the state sets of what a victim can be who a victim is, what a victim looks like, the circumstances of victimhood versus the circumstances of criminalization. That's at the crux of why the carceral system can't provide us justice for gender-based violence.
1: And, you know, it, it's tied directly into understandings of femininity and understandings that tie directly into who can be a victim of sexual assault or gender-based violence. And this idea of like the perfect survivor, right? Like a petite, uh, wealthy, non-threatening cisgender white woman, right? And so for the victims of Daniel Holtzclaw who were all black women, right? Black women don't fit into that box, right? Queer and trans people and trans women do not fit into that box of like who the survivor is, right? So we know that, you know, these marginalized women are disproportionately affected by sexual assault. So when police officer is involved in this, they have been inculcated in a system that tells them that black women do not have autonomy over their own bodies and thus cannot be raped, right? It goes into a long history, into the institution of slavery, right? Where quite literally you had slave masters in post-slavery even, making the argument that black women were unrapeable because they weren't human beings, quite literally. And and we see this with the Daniel Holtzclaw case that all of these women who had reported time and time again that this officer was using his power in this Black community in Oklahoma City to enforce that power through sexual assault, through sexual violence. And none of them were listened to. And it's a result of these intersecting forms of oppression of, of racism and sexism and the carceral system that sort of rests at its nexus, the idea that there are people who can be victims, and there are people who are perpetrators and black people always fit into that latter category.
0: Yeah, I, and I come from a community, right? The trans community where our bodies are the evidence for the violence that's perpetrated against us, right? This is the trans panic defense that is legal in many, many states. It is state statute that if I am having sex with you and I have not disclosed to you that I am trans and you discover in the process of having sex with me that I am trans and you murder me, that is a justifiable defense in a court of law. And I mean, our bodies are the evidence, our bodies are the proof, the way we exist in the world is all the justification that is needed for our victimization and often subsequent death. We know that trans women and trans people, and I think that I should name that, I should have brought up sex work much earlier in this conversation because sex work and the activism of sex workers in their own defense has been key in breaking open these conversations around carceral feminism, you know, trans people are often accused of being sex workers simply by being, I don't know, people who, you know, have bodies. (laughs) I don't, I'm getting a little caught up in the emotion of it because I always do when I talk about or think about these things and these possibilities for me. But We know that in terms of the criminalization of our bodies and the criminalization of Black women, trans women, queer people, these are the people who most experience direct criminalization based on the gender they experience and based on the gendered violence they experience.
1: Why is there such a a reluctance from domestic violence and sexual assault organizations to disassociate from these institutions of of policing and, and prisons?
0: I think we said it earlier, but it bears repeating. It is because these organizations rely on district attorneys and the police as gateways both to their victims, And as the holders of justice, and I think that this comes from lots of district attorney's offices help fund these organizations, federal funding for these organizations is tied to cooperation with the police. And at a a micro level, at a personal level, it is just extremely hard to undo this kind of culturally pervasive thinking. And it is extremely difficult to begin to examine the ways in which it might mean that you have personally caused harm and that you are complicit within the carceral system simply by participating or by advocating for what you saw at the time as justice as a piece of your work.
1: And I think on on the piece with Daniel Holtzclaw, right, and we think about like that as a form of, of any form of justice, right? because he got like, I don't know, a total of like 500 years, we know that human beings don't live that long, but like that, that's justice, but that his victims that the survivors in which he victimized aren't getting any sort of actual justice or healing by way of that, right? It's just the state of Oklahoma is paying all this money to lock this dude up. And there is no type of compensation or resources offered Uh, whatsoever by the state, right, who is responsible for what Daniel Holtzclaw did to these women to ensure that they can continue on a path towards healing and that they don't funnel into a a life of despair as a result of these terrible things that were done to them. And so that isn't justice under this system, like locking this dude up for for four life sentences isn't justice. I think about the gymnast doctor at Michigan State. You know, and we think about that as like justice. He victimized all of these young girls, right, who, who were incredible gymnasts. And I mean, countless women testified against them, And it took that many women to actually get him behind bars, right? So, so we actually think about how few rapists and abusers actually end up behind bars. Because as we said, like the system wasn't set up to lock those people up who hold power.
0: And often in that case, what we're naming specifically is sometimes both evident power, right? Meaning that person holds status or holds like a a role that we see as being a powerful role. Um, But we also should name like cultural power, right? White privilege, masculine privilege, all sorts of types of cultural power that people carry that shield them from being named and criminalized. Um, And I think that the other piece of this, right? Is like decoupling domestic violence, sexual assault survivor support organizations from the institution of policing would mean admitting that policing does not work and admitting that incarceration does not work. And if the people who are running these organizations are not yet ready to admit that, then it can't happen. And that admission is also the only thing that will ever move us towards real justice and real healing in our communities.
1: I also think it bears noting, right, that this is necessary for domestic violence sexual assault organizations to interrogate the ways that whiteness surfaces. Because we're talking about sort of like the carceral system, and we can't talk about it without also examining its roots in white supremacist violence. And so we also have to understand the connections between the support services organizations and the whiteness that permeates these organizations and the ways that who that harms. Though it does harm white cisgender women, who it harms uh, most fervently is those marginalized women who we've been talking about, right? Black women, women of color, trans women, trans people, queer people. And so these organizations have to contest those realities in the ways that this carceral system centers whiteness and centers this idea of white womanhood as victim.
0: Yeah, thinking about white feminism was my first gateway to beginning to think about what I now name as carceral feminism because those two are intrinsically connected, like you said.
1: And so I think this is a good segue, right, into the ways that the criminal legal system uh, has failed survivors of gender-based violence, hasn't provided uh, safety or healing or protection from abuse or violence.
0: Yeah, so I mean, we've named it a few ways. I've named it in that I didn't trust the police to report to them what had happened to me because I didn't think that I would be trusted because of who I am and what my body looks like. I also, you know, it's important to name that one of the most common experiences post the crime bill of the early 90s is that in situations where police are called to someone's residence or a location for um, domestic violence, a report of domestic violence, if the police do not know what to do, they arrest both people. And the rate at which, in particular, all, always and in particular, Black people and Black women have been arrested for calling the police on their own abusers, right? Because when the police arrive, the police sense some whiff of criminality that seems to hang in the air around certain types of people has skyrocketed. To the point where it is not safe to call the police ever right and that's something that I have to talk to my people about all of the time it's just it's literally not safe to call the police, because if you call the police, you do not have any way of predicting. What violence will occur and how violence will escalate in the situation and that's difficult for a lot of reasons. We have named repeatedly in this conversation the ways that the criminal legal system has failed survivors of gender-based violence. It fails us over and over and over again and in various ways. It fails us by criminalizing the people most in need of community support. It fails us by not delivering what we see as equal justice under law. It fails us by tricking us into thinking that it is the only way that we can access justice And most of all it fails us by allowing us to fulfill and and this is the hardest part it fails us by allowing us to fulfill our revenge fantasies and allowing us to take an eye for an eye while calling it justice and justifying it in an understanding of harm was done to me and therefore someone else must experience harm In order for the situation to be
1: equalized that's that's beautiful and i think is sort of what rests on the criminal legal system criminal punishment system is an eye for an eye something wrong was done to you something wrong has to happen to this next person and is what an alternative um, or a different theory of change to this criminal punishment system in transformative and restorative justice sees as not an eye for an eye but rather how can we make whole this situation? How can we repair and transform what has actually happened? And so I I also think it's important to note that abolition feminists, primarily black women and black non-binary people have led the charge in creating these alternatives because they know most proximately the harms that this system, uh, the criminal punishment system has upon their communities as well as their bodies in particular that you laid out quite well so let's talk about state question 805 here in oklahoma if oh you, boy <laughs> if you would be willing you know what were your biggest takeaways from this campaign and how did carceral feminism play a role in that eventual failure i guess
0: yeah and the the state question failed for listeners who weren't familiar what state question 805 would have done was ended the practice of adding additional years to the sentence of someone who was convicted of a nonviolent crime because of a prior nonviolent conviction. And that is a super plain language way that's of saying something that still sounds super jargony. So it just means that because somebody had an additional nonviolent charge on their record, they'd gone to prison um, or jail for a prior nonviolent charge Um, can't serve as the justification for giving them a 30-year sentence on what would otherwise be a two- to five-year sentence. And the biggest opposition to this state question was some of the predictable players, District Attorneys, Sheriff's Association, and then also uh, a predictable player, domestic violence organizations. And this is because up until effective date, November 2020, the state of Oklahoma did not consider domestic violence to be a violent crime. And I'm going to stop there and say that violent crime is a misnomer. The nonviolent-violent distinction is one that is a legal distinction that determines sentencing ranges and penalties rather than has any indication of whether or not the quote unquote crime committed was violent and how we think of the word violent. And it's also then, of course, important to name and say a thing that has been a thread running through this conversation, which is that all criminalization is violent. um, And anything that the state deems to be a crime is the state perpetrating violence against people. So that being said, because the the major objection for domestic violence organizations, though I will say they would have found a different reason to object to this, um, that wasn't this one if this hadn't been part of it, so don't believe the, this is the only objection that we have to this piece of law was that the law was written in a way where it would have quote unquote, frozen in time, the list of violent and nonviolent crimes. And this was done very specifically and very intentionally because what we saw in Oklahoma after state question 780 and 781 and other, you know, measures that have sought to decriminalize or reduce the amount of harm that is being done by the carceral system in Oklahoma, which reminder, right, we incarcerate more people than anywhere else in the world. And what we saw was that every time the people of Oklahoma in the last five years have tried to say enough is enough, we are destroying our communities with this approach to justice. The legislature has tried to roll back what the people have said they want the system to look like. And the legislature has tried to undermine any harm reduction that has been done. And so it was written to freeze it on purpose. It was written so that the legislature could not roll back the harm reduction efforts that would have occurred if state question 805 had passed because over 80% of the crimes, 80% of the people who we are talking about being incarcerated for 30 years on a two to five year charge were not domestic abusers now and it's very hard to determine exactly the number of people who would have been eligible for sentence reduction and to be clear it would have been sentence reduction not necessarily automatic release which is what these people claimed um, would have been happening it's hard to know that because of how sentence enhancements themselves are like piecemealed together in the system and trying to figure out who has and hasn't had their sentence enhanced is a complicated process The most important piece of this is that they straight up ran a Willie Horton ad. And uh, if you don't know who Willie Horton is, I encourage you to research Willie Horton ad um, because it was a big deal. It is the model for what the most racist ad that you could imagine, most racist political ad that you could imagine sounds like. The point is that the opposition cherry picked a case of a person who they thought might experience a reduction in their sentence because of state question 805 which to be clear we researched it this person would not have been eligible for a reduction in their sentence under state question 805. this person would not have been eligible for a sentence reduction but what they did was they found a scary black man to prop up who had committed a crime where you know there were photos from police records of bloody shoes in the street and they were able to make this scare tactic ad to scare everybody into thinking you know it's a trick it's a if you vote for this, someone is going to break into your house and kill you, and then they'll only go to jail for two years. And that's just like, that was not the reality. And so those things were advocated for and endorsed by people like Trisha Everest, who is the chair of the Oklahoma County Jail Trust, the person who we are supposed to be looking to as community members to begin to heal the harm that is being done by the carceral system because of the gateway to power that these people serve. Whatever the formulation you have in your head of like, how messed up could this have been? It is the most, (laughs) it's the most messed up. My takeaways were that the opposition, Palomar domestic violence organizations, people like Trisha Everest were able to prey upon the fear that people have. And I should name like local news stations too, were able to prey upon the fear that people had. And to like, be reflexive and, and focus some of the criticism back on us, we knew that this was going to be a problem. And there were some of us within the organization who raised the idea of trying to be proactive about this, but the decision makers at the table said that they didn't think that there was a way to get out in front of this. And one of the reasons is because it is inherently an emotionally fraught situation that hinges on the fear that people experience that they might experience violence. And so I had a number of people come after me, being like, How could you support something like this? How could you work for yes on 805? When what's going to happen is that, you know, all of these domestic abusers are just gonna be freed into the streets. You know, I had to have difficult conversations with people who I worked with on other issues to say, Carceral system isn't doing what you think that it is. And it's not interrupting cycles of harm and reducing sentences for domestic violence isn't going to undisrupt the harm because the harm hasn't ever been disrupted. And I think that that's like the most important takeaway from all of this is that within the context of State Question 805 and outside of the context of State Question 805, criminalization is not the intervention that we think that it is, right? It does not disrupt the cycles of harm. It does not disrupt the cycles of violence. It perpetuates them and it allows the state to be the actor in the relationship doing harm and perpetrating violence.
1: Precisely, right? And it's this favorite carceral feminist question. What about the rapist? there are no prisons, then what about the rapists? And the answer to that, or the rhetorical question that has to be asked in response to that is, well, what about the rapists right now, right? And the, and the reality is that some 996 out of every 1,000 cases of, of, of rape, of sexual assault, um, of rapists, of people who perpetrate uh, these harms, right, don't actually end up behind bars, right? So rapists. Uh, people who have raped, people who have abused, perpetrators of these things are walking amongst us right now um, with no repercussions. And to also understand that prison guards, and as we mentioned earlier, right, police officers are those same people perpetrating uh, these harms, right? Maryam Kaba talks about not only do prisons and policing uh, not protect us from sexual assault, sexual violence, gender-based violence, but... Uh, what's happening to rapists right now is that not only do they not end up behind bars, but they actually end up in the White House, right? So quite literally, these systems, these systems of power, are elevating people to, uh, you know, the highest offices of power in the entire world, which just goes to show that this system wasn't built to protect survivors, and we have to understand that and we have to divest from it. So last question for you AC right what can safety look like and what does safety look like for survivors of gender based violence, free from the punishment apparatus of the prison system, because I think abolition. uh, takes central both the dismantling of these systems and institutions of harm and violence um, and also the the presence that Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about the building up of the apparatus of the structures uh, that actually provide safety and healing for our communities.
0: I think it is hard to say like, what does it look like? I think it's easier to say, what can it look like? Or what did it look like for me? What would I like to see other people have access to? I think about, um, and again, like just a note for listeners that I'm gonna just talk a little bit about the violence that I've experienced in my answer to this question. I think about the thing that made me feel the most safe was that when I experienced sexual violence, and I escaped my attacker. I was at a party in my own home, and I escaped my attacker, and I ran into my living room and, like, threw myself at my best friend, and my best friend kind of just immediately knew what was happening because of the context of the situation, and wrapped me in a hug, and then shouted that person out of my home, right? Like, held me and then all of my friends sat around me in my backyard and like, just sat with me and asked what I needed, made sure that somebody stayed at my house that night with me, you know, and then we had a conversation about like, what do we do? What does this look like for us? Knowing that the police were not going to be there for us, what do we do? And what does it look like for AC to be able to access safety? and there were some pieces of that question that were easy you know this person and i weren't in the same department in our programs we didn't usually go to the same areas of campus it did mean asking friends to have some difficult conversations with other friends you know i can't be at this person's house if this person is there and building a system with my community right in order to help protect me and i think the most important thing that was centered at all of that was all about my agency. And I think that that is often the piece that gets left in carceral feminism. Feminism is at its core, right, to use bell hooks's definition, right, a fight to end sexist oppression, and is often defined in terms of giving women agency in their own decision making. But what happens in carceral feminism is that carceral feminists behave as though they know what is best for victims of violence, instead of asking victims and survivors of violence what is best for them. They rely on the state to know what is best for people and the state just has no formulation of what that actually is. But by centering agency, and this is something that I learned first in that training that I did as a volunteer to be a rape crisis advocate, was that the number one thing that you should do when you come across someone who has experienced violence is talk to them in a way that empowers them, that returns their agency, and that assures them that they are the person in control of their decision-making. That you do not make suggestions to them of what you think they should do. You do not give them advice. You sit with them, you lay out all of the options available to them, and then you ask them, what do you want to do? What in this moment do you need? And if the answer is you don't know what you need, then you can wait to make that decision. And so for me, safety, justice, healing for survivors looks like centering the needs of survivors, centering sex workers at the forefront of our activism, listening to sex workers, trans women, black trans women, black queer people about what we do about this system that has routinely brutalized them and their communities. And that's what I can say about that.
1: And I, I think that's great. And again, we have to resist this idea. And I know in this kind of format of, of a QA and a podcast, right, of like having all of the answers. Um, and no one person can have all the answers. And in my podcast episode with Dr. Sabina Vaught, on abolition right um she talked about how she herself can't answer the question about what does a world free from prisons and police look like right like that has to be a communal process a process that as you said centers the most marginalized um, and that all of us lift up because that is sort of the antithesis of how these systems these institutions were built and created so i want to end just quickly with a definition of abolition feminism because I think it is the inverse, the opposite of of carceral feminism. And the definition comes from a piece that Dr. Angela Davis wrote. Um, She says that abolition feminism is a liberatory vision of a world free from all forms of violence, including those produced by carceral logics and systems of surveillance, policing, punishment, and exile. Abolition feminism envisions a society based on radical freedom, mutual accountability, and passionate reciprocity. In this society, safety and security will not be premised on violence or the threat of violence. It will be based on a collective commitment to guaranteeing the survival and care of all people. I think it's important that we sit with that definition. Thank you so much, AC, for joining me today, for sharing your wisdom, your light, your story, and your work. And I hope to continue the conversation, to continue this work and this reckoning on carcerality in the state and carceral feminism in particular. So thank you.
0: Thanks so much for
1: having me. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Liberating Minds. Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, foundationofforliberatingminds.org, our social media pages at Foundation4LM, and consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon, patreon.com slash foundation4LM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power, and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.